listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and as you know at Unions 21, we always like to showcase the work of our supporters and our stakeholders. So I'm delighted to welcome to this special edition of the podcast representatives from Thompson's, the world-renowned law firm, acting on behalf of unions and their members. And around the table with me are... Linda Milnband. Lorna Webster and Tom Jones. You're all very welcome. You're all very welcome. And what we're going to do, listeners, over the next 25 minutes or so is just skirt through some of the, the highlights and the, the important high-profile cases that our legal friends are, are involved with. And Tom, if I could start with you, your your campaign that goes under the, the banner of, of Small Claims Big Impact. I mean, I, I like the title because actually that kind of suggests the whole, you know, the whole metier for personal injury work that's done on behalf of unions members. But what's this uh, campaign particularly about? There is already uh, an existing criteria of cases which are defined as being small claims, and those are cases below £1,000 in value uh, for personal injury work. And the government has a view that they ought to be increasing that limit. They are suggesting to £2,000 in all cases and to £5,000 in road traffic accident cases. That's good, isn't it? Well, that's that's the debate. So the, why would you? In, why does it matter? if you increase the small claims limit? And the answer is because below the small claims limit, if you're the, uh, you're the person injured with a £950 uh, claim in value, you don't get a lawyer. You don't get any help. You're on your own against the insurers. So you have to, use, you have to take the case on your own, in your own time, taking on insurers who have no limit about who, well, how much they're going to spend to defend a claim. So, so there's already an imbalance within the personal injury system because it is for the injured person to prove the fault, it's for the injured person to prove that they had, that their injury was connected to the accident. It, everything is down to the uh, individual who is injured. All the insurers, defendants have to do is deny, deny, deny. And so putting that onus on individuals uh, without any legal support, now we would say that wouldn't we as lawyers, but just think about it practically, that is not very fair or just, and the chances are, who's going to win? The insurers. Yeah, because they can throw money and resources at it. So what, so what's the solution? Well, the, we, we would say the answer to the situation uh, is to keep that limit at £1,000. In Scotland, there is you no limit of £1,000. You get a lawyer if you have been injured, wherever that may be, and however that is, if you need one. And equally, there are limits in, in other jurisdictions which, uh, which wouldn't uh, be £1,000. So we say we'll get rid of it altogether. But let's say we've got a thousand pounds if you're going to increase it then there has to be a justification for doing so and the government in its proposals that have been uh, out and about for a few years now and are now encapsulated in the civil liability act have no justification it is just the government plucking a figure out of the air and saying we're going to increase it it doesn't bear any relation to inflation it doesn't bear any relation to the recommendations of the senior judge that they went out and asked for a view from lord justice jackson he didn't say do that he said put it up to 1500 when inflation allows and inflation hasn't got up to that figure so this is a government deciding why to increase the small claims limit. We say to suit their mates who are insurers. It's hard to draw any other conclusion, really, isn't it? I mean, it, it, we talk about access to justice being increasingly restricted, but once you're in the justice system, it looks like the, the playing field's being tilted, so you've got... Um, 
an increasing gradient to try and climb up. Yeah, I, I don't think there's... It's it's difficult to see any other justification. And funnily enough, it, the government has said, oh, we're going to exempt vulnerable road users. So those they've defined as being cyclists, pedestrians, motorcyclists, and horse riders. Now, there's a suspicion in me that this is all about Pippa from the home counties who they're looking to look after. But let's put that prejudice of mine about the Tories' agenda here on one side. It is they've separated out this group and they've said this group will stay at £1,000. So what if you're a paramedic arriving on a bicycle to an incident or a paramedic arriving in an ambulance to an incident? Or what about the police outrider on a motorbike compared to the one in a panda car? Well, they can be treated differently. One's going to get a lawyer and one isn't. Crazy, 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 crazy. Um, so um, we'll come back at the end to, to work out exactly where we are along the road in all these cases and campaigns to see how close or far away from success we are. But Lorna, if I could, if I could turn to you next, and your, your key area is about that old, nasty, horribly fatal thing for many workers of a, of a particular age or in a particular environment, asbestos. And, and I believe the campaign you're looking after is asbestos past but present, which I think, again, is a, it sums it up rather well. The legacy issues from this are, are terrible. It is indeed. And I mean, the aim of the campaign is to raise awareness that asbestos is not just something from our past. It's not something in our history. And it is very much present in today's society, unfortunately, for far too many people. And when I mention asbestos to people, they tend to think they're going to get a history lesson and they vaguely have heard of the word asbestos because perhaps their dad or their granddad worked with it, maybe in the 60s or the 70s. But it doesn't affect me today, does it, Lorna? And it's not until I start telling them about the clients that I act for who are dying from asbestos-related diseases that they realise, actually, it is very present today in our society. Of course. I mean, I, my kids' school, uh, the pavilion's been closed for months and months and months because it was built, actually, I think it was built in the late 60s. It's got an asbestos roof, and it's, it's falling to bits, and, you know, it takes time and trouble to seal the area and remove the asbestos, and then is there money to put a new roof on and all the rest of it. But also, of course, asbestos-rated deaths are horrible, horrible deaths. They are. They're absolutely horrific. I mean, I deal with clients who suffer from mesothelioma on a daily basis, and you would not wish that condition on your worst enemy. It's prolonged, it's agonising, it's awful for the person going through it, and it's awful for their family members and their friends seeing their loved one go through that. And then I deal with grieving widows, grieving sons, daughters, other family members, and it's 90% of the time, it's because these people went to work. 90% of mesotheliomas are caused by occupational exposure. And all these people did was go to work, typically in the 60s and 70s, to earn a decent wage, earn an honest wage, look after their families, and all these years later, it comes back to them through absolutely no fault of their own. So in terms of Thompson's involvement in these cases, what, what are the nature of the cases you're, you're dealing with? And what's, what's the desired outcome that you have from the campaign? Unfortunately, I can't save lives in terms of my clients that have already been exposed to asbestos and who go on to develop an asbestos-related condition. But what I can do is get them some justice 
from the person or the people that expose them to asbestos and get them some, some financial recognition that this shouldn't have happened. That's all we could do at the end of the day, but it's such a specialist area that you do need to know what you're doing in order to bring these cases because we have constant battles with insurance companies, with former employers, and they will fight two for now in these cases because you, if you win, if you can prove everything, you can receive a significant sum of money. I'm wondering, is, is, is there any is there any kind of correlation or, or, or comparison between the cases you're dealing with on, on asbestos-related illnesses and, say, tinnitus, where, uh, for example, uh, sometimes you, you, you can negotiate a no-fault liability, an agreement that actually if you can demonstrate that the person was employed in this occupation, if you can demonstrate they were employed in this, this date and they present the tinnitus, the, the employer and their insurers just say, do you know what, actually, fair enough, we're not going to argue over all these cases. Unfortunately, mesothelioma does not have a no-fault scheme. Um, it would be great if it did, because it would save these people who are dying having to go through the litigation process and having to prove that they were innocently exposed to asbestos. They did nothing at all, and yet they have to fight every step of the way with the help of lawyers such as myself, who, who are specialists in the area, to make sure they win their case. I would love for there to be a scheme to make it easy for these people just to be paid to recognise the fact that they have developed this condition and they should receive financial compensation for it. But we have to fight for them. We have to fight. And presumably the people you're fighting turn in an exceptionally healthy profit every year and therefore will, in the same way as, as the, 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 uh, the small claims big impact, the, the, the field of justice is, is not even, it's on a slope. The reality of the situation is it's very few employers who actually pay out the compensation. It's the insurance industry that pay. They were very happy to take all the premiums many years ago, but they're not so happy to pay the money out now to people that deserve it and people that have to prove their case every step of the way. And that, you know, as I said earlier, these are large sums of money that we can potentially recover, and insurance companies do not just want to write a check out for that kind of money. And there's far too many people every year being diagnosed with mesothelioma, as well as other asbestos-related conditions. And so that's a lot of money they're having to pay out, and it's worth their time and effort to fight these cases and to block us so that they don't have to pay out the money. But we will keep going and we will continue Great. to fight. Well, please do. Please do. Pouch your way. And I, I mean, the thought, the thought runs around my brain. I can't, I, I, I can't stop it running around my brain, which, which is to say there should be, you know, there should be a, a, an obligation, perhaps a legal framework, a moral framework, cert certainly around insurers to actually play fair. To, well, to do the right thing. But then, of course, you wouldn't have so much casework. But, 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 but insurers, and that's what always frustrates me around this, is insurers will run the uh, the presentation they'll put out there is that, you know, we just can't wait to help you and put the cheque in the post. And, and yet, in cases which we are really, you know, slam dunk, you know, we're still fighting with them and we're still arguing over issues that they, frankly, ought to just recognise and... and, and pay out and you know I, I appreciate they need to keep their profits up but the profits are pretty phenomenal oh, and indeed. keep getting greater indeed. so you know there, there has to be some kind of balance there we've had windfall taxes before haven't we it's getting a well, bit radical I, there i suppose indeed. maybe that's what the, the, the profits are there for <laughs> M moving along listeners but but not not very far and not in a very comfortable uh, direction either linda your you, the campaign you're leading on is about is about this this previously little known but now increasingly well-known problem of mesh implants in patients. Yes, indeed. I mean, they have been there for a number of years. I mean, I think they were introduced in around 1998, but the problems have only really come to light recently. 
because a lot of the mesh that was put into people's bodies in the early years has only just started to erode. One of the problems is that it can clump up like a little ball inside you from the tiny piece of flat tape that was inserted and that in itself can puncture and erode into other organs around I, it. I, it sounds horrendous. I, I'm squirming here actually I mean but but, but, but the, the, the particular problem with mesh is once it's in you can't get it out. Well that's absolutely right but that information was not passed on to people prior to the insertion of the mesh. And did people know? No. In fact And not the patients did the, did, the, did the people doing the inserting know that there was this well, characteristic? the problem with it was that it was always an alien body so in other words it was a piece of plastic and obviously the manufacturers of that knew that they were putting an alien body into people's anatomy and indeed the consultants and the hospitals who were using it knew that they were putting an alien body into so I think people should have known that there would be problems with it and the problem with this was it was not properly tested before it was actually allowed onto the market. And in legal terms is that is that a particularly strong argument that can be deployed to say actually people were the, the manufacturers or certainly the, the surgeons med or medical people were, were, were negligent or reckless in what they were doing? Well we are actually running the majority of our cases on a failure to consent the patient so obviously the information that was given to the patient was quite simply that this was a very simple operation where a piece of tape would solve all their problems. It could be put in in a the morning, there would be no downtime, they'd be able to return to work by the afternoon and that they, uh, the urinary problems that they had suffered for years would be over. They were given very little information about risks, they weren't told that it couldn't be removed, they weren't told about erosion. I think some people were told that it could erode but I don't think most people thought that erosion meant that it could actually cut into the organs around. I yeah, mean, my yeah. knowledge of the word erosion was from geography. Likewise. Um, <laughs> where it was actually something that frayed, not something that could cut into other things. So I think most people were very poorly consented in relation to this. Now, the campaign is called Patients Before Profit. Mm -hmm. why, why profit? I mean, I mean, the downside, I always think, about, uh, about litigating on health issues in the UK is of course most people have a really really strong attachment to the NHS and mm. the thought the thought that a the NHS could hurt us and b that that we would want to sue them is is kind of really it's a really difficult one to accommodate but I imagine from the title that we're talking predominantly about private hospitals We are here. indeed I mean we have run a number of cases against Rogue surgeons was where the where the, uh, the actual patients before profit campaign came from because we'd acted for uh, Mr. Patterson, who's breast surgeon in the West Midlands, and he carried out unnecessary breast surgery on people who he told had got breast cancer when they didn't have breast cancer um, for many years. And this was mainly done in the private sector, which was totally unregulated. And he was allowed to carry on this illegal surgery for at least a decade without anybody actually finding this. And one of the things that we found out was that private hospitals were happy to take the consultant's money but they weren't interested in carrying out any regulation which would have matched the NHS position and they did not have any sort of interest whatsoever in accepting responsibility for anything that the surgeon did on their premises. They said he was merely a contractor and therefore had to have his own insurance 
and therefore we know that they were only really interested in the profit. And Linda, sorry, very quickly, I think, yeah. do you remember, I mean, one of the uh, people at the at Spire Group told one of our uh, clients that all they did was rent him a room. Yes, indeed. <laughs> even though he was on their website, even though they were making profit out of the book, it was just unacceptable. This is, but this, I mean, you know, say it was relatively unknown perhaps five years ago as, as an issue. And now, I mean, you, you, you know, the caseload must be very significant now. And that, mean, that means that that means the you know, the distress and the pain that people are suffering is very significant. Yes, and a lot of the MESH cases were also carried out in the private sector uh, and obviously they weren't given the right information. As we've said, they weren't consented properly, but again, the private sector was very happy to accept those operations without carrying out any investigations or working out what people should be informed before the operation was carried out. So patients before profit actually does relate to MESH cases. Gosh. Um... If you're still with us, listeners, stay the course, stay the course. Feeding the fat cats. I, I've got to say, I love these snappy titles. I think it kind of brings the, it brings the, the work alive in a Yeah, in a I mean, way. it's, it's uh, the uh, frustrated tabloid journalist in me. I think, the, I think feeding fat cats, in a sense, touches on all of the issues we've just d- discussed. Yeah, um, yes, indeed. I mean, you know, we've got the, the small claims where we're saying that it is wrong that um, we have individuals who are hurt having to take on insurers on their own, uh, whilst the insurers make uh, increasingly huge, huge profits. We have Lorna's work on asbestos where individuals are having to fight against insurers who are fighting every inch of the way. And we have Linda's work on, on Mesh and previously on Patterson where, you know, the, the private hospitals are doing very nicely, thank you very much, and not prepared to accept responsibility. So the actual feeding fat cat headline is around insurers, but it could equally apply to, you know, to, to uh, the situation on patients before profits where there is something not quite right going on here and some people are doing very well out of it. The insurer's profits are significant and uh, and we've put a lot on our website every time the reports come out of, of their profit increases and they and, and yet at every level they are fighting and I, and, and I get their job is not to you know they want to hold on to their profits but there there comes a balance you know there comes a sort of a decency threshold and we're not there no not by not by a long way and of course part the whole problem is is that is that people contract out the risk don't they I mean, we will do it in a domestic mm-hmm. sense with home insurance or, or, or whatever you contract contract out the risk but actually you know you put such distance between the interface where the problem takes place and where the liability ultimately is that it's wrong it's it's not transparent it, it's you know it's 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 about opaque's this table and if if ordinary people most of the population didn't have access to proper legal advice then actually they would stay locked out of the system and if you're looking at motor insurance or you're looking at insurance uh, of property it's pretty much well certainly it's compulsory for motor insurance you mm. go out and get mm. your insurance uh, it's pretty much compulsory if you've got a mortgage for you to go and insure yep. your property and those are areas where once you start digging a bit the profit that is being made out of them and the transparency around it is in- incredible profit and very little transparency Listeners, is it time for a windfall tax on insurance companies? I, sorry, you have to answer. I know what your answer will be, I suspect. And the insurance companies will say, oh, we'll have to put up premiums. But insurance companies, I challenge you. I challenge you 
disclose all your profits and actually I'm sure your premiums can stay just where they are it's been a fascinating d- 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 discussion I mean can I just invite everyone perhaps to chip in if, if there was one thing if there was just if there's one thing given your professional areas of expertise that you would want the government to do what would it be well for me it would be to ensure that private hospitals uh, carry their own insurance for cover when uh, rogue surgeons or treatment goes wrong because at the moment it's actually the rogue surgeon who has to insure himself and as in Patterson that insurance was inadequate so I think that private hospitals much must accept that they are responsible for anything that goes wrong on their premises and insure accordingly. Sounds fair to me. For me it would be for the government to invest money into schools because I think you mentioned earlier Simon there are schools that have asbestos materials in them and we have our children going to these schools and we have teachers and staff going to these schools and if that asbestos is managed it's not a problem but I know from experience that not all schools and in fact very few schools are managing their asbestos and that needs to be enforced and money needs to be given to schools to manage the asbestos and if necessary remove it. Yeah, I'd heartily heartily agree with that. I think I would say that we need more transparency uh, from the insurers. Uh, they tend to hide behind saying, well, it's you know reinsured and it's the brokers and it's somebody else. And, you know, we can't possibly say, you know, what the decent, you know, uh, threshold ought to be. I, I, I think it's insurers should be more transparent. And I think the connection between insurers and the Conservative Party would be worth digging into as well. Hmm. There's a thought. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, I mean, thank you all very much, all very much indeed. I mean, if if people want to find out more about the, these campaigns in particular, or about Thompsons as a company gen, in general, where can they go? Our website, which is uh, thompsons.law.co.uk, and and we put all our campaign stuff up on there, and we'd welcome people giving us ex- examples from their lives of how they've been impacted by the type of issues we've just been talking about. Thank you very much, Linda, Lorna, Tom. It's been it's been a really interesting discussion, and I hope, listeners, you've enjoyed finding out more about some of the really important events that are affecting hundreds of thousands of people uh, across the country at the moment, and the importance of good legal representation that is sympathetic and accessible to everyday men and women. And if you'd like to find out more about the, the Unions 21 organisation and what we do, you can visit our website, which is www.unions21.org.uk. You can tweet us at unions21. And if you're listening to this podcast, please rate it on the podcasting platform of your choice. Please share it widely. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you've got ideas for further podcasts, if you yourself are a supporter or a stakeholder of Unions 21 and you'd like us to come and visit you and find out what all the good and wonderful things that you're doing, just email us at info at unions21.org.uk. Uh, I've been Simon Sapper. It's been great to have your company. And until the next podcast, goodbye. been listening to the unions 21 podcast our music is albatross version 2 by the computer music all-stars used on a creative commons license it is a makes you think production